0: Hello and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am your co-host Connor
1: McNamara Stratton, and I am your other co-host Jack Rossiter Mumley,
0: and we have got an extra special, extra spooky episode with a really, really excellently creepy
1: poem. <laughs> Connor, I think there's a ghost in here. Ooh, oh my god! You hear that is that just on my um, is my mic haunted, or is that like both of us? Ooh.
0: I think that means we need to get like an actual sound mixer so we can like do actual high tech effects because yeah.
1: I don't right. know what I, Connor. This is not an effect. I no number of high tech effects could replicate having a real spooky ghost in your microphone, which is what I think is happening to me. Well, (sighs) be that as it may. It's weird. The ghost only haunts the microphone when I'm not talking.
0: (laughs) And we'll never get to the poem because this ghost is just really impatient, which I feel like most ghosts are impatient.
1: Yeah, they're Um, like, get me out of here. I want to go to the afterlife. I hate the mortal (laughs) plane and I'm tethered to it. Help me fulfill my mission so I can become one with the eternal.
0: That's what every ghost thinks when they wake up. Okay, we have got a wonderful poem called Mercy, which is by the poet Anna Journey, who is a spectacular poet. And this poem is from her collection, Vulgar Remedies, which came out in 2013. And fun fact David Lynch tweeted about it and said that her poetry is very magical. She has uh also published two books recently in 2017: another poetry collection and an essay collection. The essay collection is called An Arrangement of Skin. The poem, uh, the book of poems is called The Atheist War Goat Silk. And just for effect, so you I think you really get a good sense from her her book titles that uh where, where her mind is going. The very first book she had uh, was called If Birds Gather Your Hair for Nesting. Yikes. All equally compelling and disturbing.
1: I have um, to say, an arrangement of skin either sounds like what a very specific type of serial killer calls other human beings. <laughs> like, oh, look at these can arrangements ready for me to dissemble. Uh, Or it is what that serial killer will ask you to come take a look at when you visit his home where he'll be like, Hey, come see my arrangement to scan. There's like nothing not creepy about that book title. And I love it. Oh my God. That's amazing. She also, if you remember our
0: episode about the poet, I, she wrote an essay that we referenced on that episode that was about the grotesque, and that essay was called Earning the Vomit, the Grotesque in Contemporary Poetry. But without further ado, I will read it now. It is called Mercy by Anna Journey. She spends the night with a man who once hunted deer, who keeps squirrel meat stacked in his deep freezer, the white ice rising over red cubes like the animal's fur as it returns. Cold night, she rolls closer to fit the curve of his quilt slurred spine. She remembers the patches' outlines. Scattered houses snipped from dead women's linen, those thin A-frames. Better to snap the neck of a shot deer than to wait for it to slowly bleed. He believes this. A sleepwalker, he often wakes with a different woman's head between his knees. He holds her vertebrae in place as one hand cups the jugular, the other seizes the skull. He wakes to the dull warmth of limbs kicking the sheets, to the scream of a deer becoming a woman.
1: Super spooky. This poem,
0: I was looking at my copy of Logo Remedies just, just now, and there's a large exclamation point next to the lines, the white ice rising over red cubes like the animal's fur as it returns, because... Holy shit, that is so gross, but also an incredible image. It's like, there's the frozen animal flesh that's red in the freezer, and then the white ice is just like, you know, emerging as ice does, and it looks like the fur coming back, regrowing from the actual
1: flesh. Yeah, it's a really vivid, creepy image, and it it's so clear like you can just see it it's like a time lapse video of the ice crystals forming in your head as you yeah. read that line it's so creepy there are so many little moments like that that are really creepy but also sound really great like quilt slurred spine i know curve of a quilt slurred spine like ooh, oh. <laughs> i don't i love it but i also hate it Ugh. yeah um, yeah same with cups the jugular and the skull and the dull warmth all the sounds in there mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah no the sounds are so tight yeah the curve of the quilt slurred spine there's the er and the o and the the u's and the s it's also a brutal it's in jammed between the quilt and the slurred there's a line break between the hyphenated phrase which is like very brutal and
1: describing a spine as slurred, holy crap! Um, I have some thoughts on that that maybe we'll get to in a little bit. But okay. I'm sort of curious about the she and the he in this poem and what is going on between them. Do you have any? Yes. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, yeah, I was thinking before we
0: get to like in the weeds because that's clearly where I want to go. It would be helpful maybe to even just start with like a basic plot of the poem. And so we basically, the way that I read it is we have we have a she who is sleeping over sleeping with a guy and is like at his place.
1: Okay, so can we both agree that his place is probably a super creepy cabin in the middle of nowhere because that's the only that's literally, like that's the only setting I can imagine this taking place in even though it's never described. Yeah. I just imagine him as like some kind of secret doomsday prepper with a thousand squirrels in his freezer just waiting for the apocalypse and this yeah. woman, this poor woman has for whatever reason agreed to go to his like weird ass cabin in the woods. The,
0: yeah, the preamble or the, the pre-poem to this is them driving for a very long time into the woods with like eerie music and him seeming very nice and she excited and then being like, uh, you know, I'm I'm in a horror movie, but I don't know it yet. But anyway, I totally agree. I think she she captures the ambiance without having to say cabin in the woods. So she's there and it's cold, you know, at the place. And so she's, she's like sleeping close to him basically. And then she's remembering, so the quilt has patches and she's remembering what they looked like, that there's houses or whatever, you know, then there's a kind of the plot turn where there's a moment that's like better to snap the neck of a shot deer than to wait for it to slowly bleed. We don't know at the moment, like who's thinking this, if it's like the speaker of the poem, um, if it's her, if it's him. Well, we know at least then immediately after it says he believes this. So it's at least something that he has thought. Then it sort of switches at that point to the man's perspective. Then basically he's a sleepwalker, We get the sense that he sleeps with a lot of women. He often wakes with a different woman's head between his knees, which is like the most macabre way of describing promiscuity. Then it basically describes the action of him in his sleep, snapping her neck as if she was a deer. And by the end, um, or, or maybe strangling, I'm not exactly sure. But then he wakes up um, and the line to the scream of a deer becoming a woman. The way that I read that, at least on the most literal level, is that he's dreaming about a deer and he's dreaming about snapping the neck of a deer. And then as he wakes up, he realizes that it's the woman that he had slept with.
1: That's pretty much my reading of it as well. It's creepy it also seems like his promiscuity is perhaps of necessity as he keeps killing all of the women he brings back to his creepy murder palace the section about this presumed killing opens with he often wakes which makes it seem like it happens over and over and over again and there's a moment that i'm a little curious about right at the beginning of the poem i'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are but it opens with she spends the night with a man who once hunted deer And then the connection at the end is of a deer becoming a woman. And there's also this sense of it happening before, as I said, with a sleepwalker, he often wakes with a different woman's head between his knees. What is with the he once hunted deer? Because it makes it sound like, well, does he still do that? Is that an activity in the past or is it possibly indicating that the events of this night are not unique to this night? They are something that happens over and over.
0: That he hunts women now,
1: basically. Yeah, whether intentionally or unintentionally becomes a little unclear. Right. I think in my initial readings, I ascribed a little bit more intentionality to it, just because the way he is described throughout, even in the section of the poem that is from the more from the perspective of the she than the he, the descriptors make him sound like a killer or a predator or a hunter. So not only does he hunt deer but he hunts squirrels. Not only does he also hunt squirrels, but he has a lot of them. There's all of this squirrel meat stacked in his freezer. like In a deep freezer. In a deep freezer. So he's got lots of room for lots of stacking. Like This it's guy like kills over and over and over again.
0: The special freezer for the game that he has gotten, I assume. Right. No, I think that's a really good observation. And I actually hadn't i I had been confused by the once hunted deer, but now that you mention that it it does now that we've sort of explicitly put it in a more of a ghost horror story, I think you're right that he often wakes and the fact that that's what's interesting there is two things maybe a sleepwalker he often wakes with a different woman's head between his knees. That's an action that presumably he would be doing awake, you know if if they're having sex but it's framed as he's like sleeping when that's happening. So then that makes what happens next him basically sleep killing seem more toward the being awake kind of thing, or like, I don't know, which makes it seem like it's more repetitious. I don't
1: think I said that very clearly. Here's my creepy thought on that. Okay. Okay. A sleepwalker. He often wakes with a different woman's head between his knees. What if he's kind of, sleepwalking through life and through sex and stuff. And he only really wakes up or feels alive when he is doing the killing.
0: Killing, that's also when he's like, you know, receiving oral sex or something like that. Right. like, well, the like sex and the death and the sex and the killing are related, right? I think. Right.
1: Like, so when her head is between his knees, he's like, ah, she's vulnerable. I've got yeah. her. Yeah. Uh, And then that like that thought is what sort of wakes in that moment. Mm -hmm. And then later on, it says he wakes to the dull warmth of limbs, kicking the sheets. So he's actually physically awake, but he feels awake or feels alive in that moment when he has her head between his hands, the way it used to be between his knees with one hand cupped under the jugular, another behind her head, like he's got her head caught. And then, Snap, my entire frame of reference for this is the Netflix series Mind Hunter, so I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> but that I am led to believe is a thing and is a possible. I don't know that that's necessarily what's going on, but it was something that I was thinking about when I was reading, especially that that last part.
0: Well, to read way more into it and sort of totally pseudo psychoanalyze this person you know, if he's a serial killer effectively, the once hunting deer that makes sense in that my pop psychology, serial killers often start with animals or do, do things horrible to animals. And then at a certain point, people always talk about like that no longer gives them enough thrill or excitement or whatever thing they want. And so once hunted deer could be a kind of very, very, very implicit sort of allusion to the fact that, you know, he's like leveled up in his cruelty game.
1: The fact that that is followed by the discussion of squirrels fits with that reading because the harm to small creatures, as you're pointing out harm to animals in general, but in in early life, harming small creatures is one of the like indicators of possible later, uh, you know, issues.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So I think that's all very plausible and it makes me happy enough with, with understanding at least the once hunted. Then I think maybe this is jumping a little too far, but there's kind of, there's the broader meaning that, you know, so there's the literal meaning of the poem. There's the action there, you know, the plot, then there's the kind of as we're doing kind of the the inference about the, the larger facts surrounding, you know, like a kind of exposition about the poem. But then there's sort of the question of like, what does this poem like represent, you know, either in a metaphorical way, a symbolic way, or if it's not sort of a direct one-to-one, like the man is a symbol for X, which... I mean, I think one great reading is just violent patriarchy, which not to get political. But please do. Well, it's, I mean, in the wake of the Kavanaugh trials. Hey,
1: uh, fuck that guy.
0: Oh, I said Kavanaugh trials. Hearings. I wish they were trials. Jesus. Well, Everything smart that has been said about the Kavanaugh hearings and what that sort of very upsetting thing sort of means in terms of gender and patriarchy and male entitlement and violence. I have nothing like sort of specifically new to add, except that this poem in a similar way, but in a kind of eerie, resonant, haunting, symbolic way creates the figure of this man that has a kind of, as you know, we were suggesting, perhaps repetitive violence against women. And even if it's only one time, it's done in this way where he's kind of not even aware of it. And that, you know, could be, there's many ways we could go with this one. You know, it's like that could be speaking to the way that this violence is sort of so normalized for men that you do it in your sleep something like that. And I just figured out why the title is called what it is, because I was so confused why it was called Mercy. But the the part about better to snap the neck of a deer is the merciful way he thinks it is to kill a deer, which I guess probably at that circumstance, if it's a deer, is the case. And then that becomes an eerie sort of like the killing of the woman at the end still retains that like mercy resonance, even though it's like, heavily ironized. Anyway, that was a long ramble.
1: I I know I love all of that. I think that's so good. And I have a couple of thoughts. So that section that you pointed out better to snap the neck of a shot deer than to wait for it to slowly bleed. He believes this. I had highlighted that and just wrote Mercy next to it, because that one line, better to snap the neck of a shot deer than to wait for it to slowly bleed, which is actually spread across three lines, but that one sentence is like the pivot point in the poem, as you said earlier, where it goes from her perspective to his, but that line sits apart and is just kind of a statement. By putting he believes this after it, what is never considered is that perhaps the merciful thing to do is to look at the deer through the sight of your rifle and not shoot. And that is just never even an option for him. It's only after an initial act of violence and that he's like, well, you know, you kill it fast instead of slow. Uh, it did it right this time. It's, that's merciful. It didn't hurt too <laughs> much. But as you were saying, this guy who is coded as so violent, who is written as we were saying earlier, like possibly a serial killer, like he's given attributes of a serial killer, but... If he's standing in for the violence that is regularly done by men, it points to exactly what you were discussing. There's another moment that was interesting to me to go along with your reading, which is the different descriptions of his spine and hers. So his is the curve of his quilt slurred spine. The sounds are open and flow. The image that's conjured is this free all over the place very comfortable at ease it's in his home but we also know that he goes out into the world and kills and brings things back into it he's got this notion of freedom of movement whereas with her not only do we hear about her almost constantly in relation to him her heads between his knees but specifically the description of her spine is he holds her vertebrae in place as one hand cups the jugular and the other seizes the skull. All of her bones are under his control the entire time. Everything about her physicality is in relation to him. She spends the night with a man. It's not her on her own doing anything. We immediately get the sense that her world is constrained by him, specifically in the description of their respective backbones, I guess spine areas like literal nerve centers in some ways his is all over the place and kind of does whatever it wants and is uncontainable whereas hers is under his control
0: i think that's that's a really good parallel to draw and another moment sort of like in terms of craft about that that pivot point all of the lines except for the very first line every single line leading up to that sentence is line breaked and and jammed, and oftentimes very extremely so. So there's, she spends the night with a man who once hunted deer, that's the first line, but then who keeps squirrel meat line break stacked in his deep freezer, the white ice line break rising over red cubes like the animal's line break fur as it returns and then, uh, you know, there's his quilt, line break slurred spine and, you know, scattered houses snipped line break from dead women's linen. I actually often, when I teach poetry and I teach uh, like lineation, I often include this poem because then after that sentence, we have better to snap the neck of a shot deer than to wait it to slowly bleed. Then we have he believes this full stop. And we have a, a cesura. So we have the pause to slowly bleed, full stop. He believes this, full stop. And the moment at which the line breaks stop coming, and the moment at which the full stops become the most intense is the exact moment at which the poem switches perspectives from hers to his. Partly, I think this is just this subtle kind of like, you know, you could think about the line breaks as a, as a, like a, you know, following the tracking of a camera. And it's sort of, this is the moment where it it is is moving. And so you notice because the camera moves that you're paying attention to something news, new. And so as the momentum shifts, the perspective shifts. And so you're sort of like made alert. And then even after that, basically every line is jammed until... The very end of the poem. So there's two big sets of momentum, her perspective and his perspective. So I just thought that was very interesting. And it also allows, like, in the same way that we talked about Blackberry Picking by Seamus Heaney, and how some of the images in the first stanza were morbid or lurid or you know bloody and that kind of set up the sort of the plot of what happened with all the berries going bad the the squirrel meat obviously sets up sort of the action that happens but also the lines break scattered houses snipped from dead women's linen and then there's a line break after you know better to snap line break the neck of the shot deer snap obviously has a violent resonance because it's referring to breaking the neck of the deer but the line breaks sort of emphasize and sort of draw out the snipping and
1: the snapping
0: you know more so than if they had been sort of crunched in the beginning of the line
1: i love all of that i mean you're you're so right the way the lines break in this is really telling and as line breaks are almost always highly intentional in their application. And this poem is a really good example of that.
0: Some other thoughts, just like random ones, because you were sort of talking about how the woman in the poem often, or sort of rarely appears without being in relation to the man. And I think that is largely true. And I think deliberately so. But there's two moments that aren't like, well, there's one moment that it's not the case. And it's kind of like a strange moment. So I'm curious what you think about it. But it's the moment where she's like, right after she's rolling closer to him to fit his spine. And then it's, she remembers the patches' outlines. Scattered houses snipped from dead women's linen. Those thin A-frames. Such a sort of strange choice to linger on the images of this quilt. You know, so we have kind of like, The quilt is made up of a bunch of squares and presumably like from dead women's linen, there's a, well, okay. I had one reading and now that I'm thinking about it in our new context, we begin to understand that perhaps this quilt is made up of the linens of all of the women that he's killed and assembled into this quilt. Yes. Now that I realize it,
1: Get creepy with it. Yes. Um, Uh, My other thought was that it was like a family quilt from his ancestor women and that even terrible men come from households where they like grew up with moms and stuff. That was my other reading. Yeah. But I I like the creepy reading.
0: And it works with with our other thoughts about this being a kind of not a one-time thing. What do you make of those thin A-frames? I guess I'm just like, what is an (laughs) A-frame?
1: Well, I took it to be A-frames like A-frame houses. Okay, And then that is sort of like the way that square quilt pieces would be put together, or maybe they're uh, triangle-shaped quilt pieces, which would also be somewhat feminine in their symbolism, perhaps. Those are my two thoughts. Basically, that it could either be a square or a triangle and that those were the shapes that made up the quilt. And she's remembering them because it's probably dark and so maybe she doesn't see them, but she's remembering what they looked like when she did see them. And even this part where her her, like one action in the poem is that she like moves closer to him and then thinks about one of his possessions.
0: Well, I know. And now that I realize what the the dead women I sort of... All right. I thought I had a moment... The other moment that is not sort of, it's in relation to him, but it's sort of still interesting in a different kind of way. And I'm curious what you think about it, which is just the very end. So, I mean, it's such an amazing and horrifying line, but to the scream of a deer becoming a woman. A poem could could say that the woman was killed. It could put it in those terms, which is to say the negative of offing, killing, blah, blah, blah. But the way that it's it's put, although we know in the literal description, you know, it's a kind of murder, the way that the line is, is actually quite a striking sort of like metamorphosis. And it's a becoming. Obviously, we understand that it's becoming a woman to like him as wakes up. But the poem ends on this kind of, it haunts us in some ways, partly for what a lot because of what he is doing. But it's also it's the image of the woman who's come from a deer, which is kind of like in a in like the like Ovid's metamorphosis. It's like a reverse metamorphosis, like instead of like a woman turning into a deer so that she can escape some lustful God.
1: I also I didn't think of Ovid's metamorphosis, but excellent connection. I thought of Io who turned herself into a cow to try and get away from Zeus. So similar kind of idea, but slightly different mythology. Yeah, I mean, I Yeah, everything you said, it's just hor- horrific, because it really you can see both images of the woman who is being physically violated. And also the shot deer from earlier, probably struggling in pain as he comes over to break its neck out in the field wherever he shot it. And to have both of those horrific images almost laid on top of each other in the poem is really distressing. And it also points a little bit to the dehumanized way that he is viewing her in that moment. And it's curious, because he's maybe seeing her as a deer and starting to see her as a woman, but it doesn't make any difference to him. So even if his dehumanized view of her becomes more human, it's not stopping him. He's still about to break her neck.
0: Yeah, no, no, I think I think you're definitely right.
1: I have one hopeful reading of the ending. And then I have a quick and dirty thing I just thought of, of how this poem more maybe more closely connects to the issues brought up in the Brett Kavanaugh situation. Here's my hopeful reading of the end. So he's got her vertebrae in place. He's got his hands in place to break her neck. He wakes to the dull warmth of limbs kicking the sheets to the scream of a deer becoming a woman. My hopeful reading of that is if this guy stands in for like violent patriarchal masculinity writ large, that when the veil is broken and there is a moment of reflection where the dehumanized vision of women as deer in the po- in the world of the poem is broken by a scream and the deer turns into a woman a full realized human person that an individual who has been a sleepwalking member of that violent patriarchy can be awakened by that and they will release their grasp their hand uncups the jugular The other hand releases the skull and the violence of the neck break, the perceived mercy of the shot deer from earlier. That is really no mercy at all because it's just death. That vision of mercy is not what is enacted. Instead, they can begin to work at bandaging the wound as opposed to killing. That's my hopeful reading. So the wound that is akin to the wound done to the deer is the wound done to all who are the victims of this kind of violent patriarchal he writ large. And so instead of just the neck snap and saying, this is over, it's it's a bandaging.
0: Yeah, I think that's plausible. One thing that makes me think of, and I think this speaks to to the plausibility of what you're saying. And I realize that I should probably stop saying plausible because I feel like it's like one of those words that whatever you say plausible, it actually sounds like you dope mean what you
1: said you're like oh that sounds plausible like I mean, it is plausible you're, you're full you're... of it but <laughs> i mean there's a world in which maybe you got close to being right yeah timbus <laughs> but i actually mean it just like
0: like plausible is as, uh, as much as you can hope for in a highly ambiguous situation but one thing from that article that Anna Journey wrote about the grotesque. I won't go into the details, but she talks about how the grotesque can open up what she calls an indeterminate space of imaginative possibility. And I think you're right to note that the murder or the killing in this instance actually hasn't yet happened by the end of the poem. The poem sort of stops like right Before the act completes, the killing finishes. So, what that does is it opens up the end, I think, and it opens up the poem in both a specifically haunting way and in a grotesque way, but one that is sort of not like conclusive or closed or, you know, is demanding, you know, one or two or, you know, just a few possible readings. Um, But in fact, the reader has a kind of like haunted swamp with which to wade their interpretive feelings about. And so I think that I think is a very deliberate choice that the poem makes to end sort of right at that moment.
1: This is my final thought on how this connects in one way to Brett Kavanaugh and what we the the sort of disgrace that we've recently seen in the Judiciary Committee hearings and the cultural conversation around them. And it's back to that question that we've touched on a couple times about the line at the beginning, once hunted deer. So in this poem, deer and women are connected at, I would argue, three points in the poem. The beginning, right at the middle where the turn happens, and then because of how it ends, it points back to that middle part actually being another connection point. In the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, a large part of the conservative conversation around them wasn't even whether or not he did it. It was that this all happened a long time ago, sort of along the lines of boys will be boys, a lot of repugnant narratives along those lines of, of course he drank and maybe he did this, but everybody did this kind of stuff. Basically, he once hunted deer. The latent violence that having once hunted deer points to is brought up throughout this poem and the really disastrous effects of it are pointed to at the end. And that's the argument that many other people were making that, okay, he did probably do this, almost certainly he did this, And that means something. And maybe that means he would be a terrible person to have in a position ruling on cases that deal with women's bodily autonomy and a 100,000 other issues about particularly women's personhood and agency in the United States and what laws are made about those things. And I think this poem could be read as a refutation of those who try to say that the actions of a young person speak in no way to their later character. And there's the possibility for growth in everyone. But this poem is about someone who sleepwalks who doesn't question those aspects of themselves. And that's what really came out in Brett Kavanaugh's testimony as a man in his 50s, is that he was willing to try and deny all of these things that were very clearly and easily provably false, like saying he didn't drink when everyone says he drank to excess, that he didn't do this sort of thing when everyone knows that the culture he was a part of clearly did not value women's personhood and had an incredibly entitled attitude towards what these young men of privilege were meant to be in their lives. So I would say that that is one area where the way that this poem deals with the reality of having once hunted deer connects to what we just saw with Brett Kavanaugh.
0: Yeah, I think that's really, that's really astute. One thing that she's really good at, and this is the last thing that I'll say,
1: is that the
0: syntax is so Like, it delays the kind of, like, true terribleness of the image. So we have, who keeps squirrel meat is on its own line. So that's just the the basic fact of it. Stacked in his deep freezer, the white ice were being located. And then the white ice rising over red cubes like the animals. And then we have a line break. We're not sure what animals goes to, but rising over red cubes is so weird and red cubes oh my god and then fur as it returns and just the delaying of the kind of like a lesser poem could say like fur growing back on flesh the squirrel meat is stacked da 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 da
1: or fur growing back for winter or something keep hitting the r's and then you've got something else cold that you're connecting to mm mm-hmm
0: but the kind of like, it's it's exact and delayed so that we get each piece of the image exactly when we need it. And then, and we're able to digest that. So then when we get to like the final piece of it, it's like, oh my God, that's like excruciating. And that is masterful. Maybe we should read it again. Sounds good to me. Sounds good. All right. Mercy, Diana Journey. She spends the night with a man who once hunted deer, who keeps squirrel meat stacked in his deep freezer, the white ice rising over red cubes like the animal's fur as it returns. Cold night, she rolls closer to fit the curve of his quilt slurred spine. She remembers the patches outlines, scattered houses snipped from dead women's linens, those thin A-frames. Better to snap the neck of a shot deer than to wait for it to slowly bleed. He believes this. A sleepwalker, he often wakes with a different woman's head between his knees. He holds her vertebrae in place as one hand cups the jugular, the other seizes the skull. He wakes to the dull warmth of limbs kicking the sheets, to the scream of a deer becoming a woman. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this, please, please write a review on iTunes, or at the very least, rate us. You can keep up with our news and other poetry and book-related news at facebook.com slash close talking or on Twitter at close talking. You can also follow me at hot Sauce boxed or Jack at Jack Rossiter-Munn. If you have another reading of one of the poems we've discussed, think we got something wrong, have a new idea for a topic we should tackle or a work we should discuss, please let us know. Tweet at us or shoot us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com.